Welcome to Disciple City Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Disciple City Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. Our desire is to unleash healthy disciple makers in West Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can listen to new messages each week. Thank you and have a God-filled day. Welcome back, y'all, from Thanksgiving. I hope you're not too tired from having Thanksgiving slash eating slash having awkward conversations with some relatives about politics or whatever. Hope this will be refreshing for you today. Um, So we're beginning a new series this month. If you haven't heard, it's called Joy to the World. And uh, it's our sermon series leading up to Christmas Day. Uh, Whether you know Jesus or not, you probably know the song Joy to the World. It's a pretty household song. Uh, But if you don't actually pay attention to the words, you may think that it's actually a Christmas song, when in all actuality, it really isn't. It's more about Jesus' second coming, his return, not really his first coming, which is Christmas Day. Isaac Watts, the writer of the song and the host of other hymns, wrote uh, wrote it on reflection of Psalm 98. We're not going to read it, but it's a song about the Lord's coming day of judgment. And uh, so the original heading was actually the Messiah's coming and the kingdom. It's a song to actually prepare your heart for the day when Jesus returns. And so we'll be in this series for four weeks looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, If that provides anxiety for you, uh, if that tenses you up, you have flashbacks of Left Behind series, hopefully this will be something a little bit more uh, a primer for your heart of Jesus's return. Uh, the, the joy of the world really speaks to his second return, and we want this sermon series speaking towards his second return. This series will serve as a challenge, both to our anxious or apathetic hearts and our postures to his return. Do you have joy at the idea of his return as king? Perhaps you, you tense up at the idea of his return, or maybe it's simply that you fear the idea that the life you've been living will be suddenly halted, and it's kind of a bummer that he returns. It's an unwelcome interruption to the life that you're living or pursuing right now. Well, we want this sermon series to challenge that. Challenge our belief that perhaps my life is better now than it will be when he returns. And I really do hope that this series prophetically pokes at those idols in an effort to push them out. That whenever Jesus does come back and whenever we are resurrected in the new life, that that life will be the best one that we could have. We want this sermon series to answer the question, why would we want Jesus to return? And secondly, why don't we hope for his return? Our hope is that we step into that song and be able to sing with it joy to the world, that Jesus would return. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into this sermon today. Father, thank you that Jesus will come back. Thank you that it is a guarantee. Thank you that When he does return, you will resurrect our life. You'll resurrect this world, the earth that we stand on, the heavens. Everything will be new and will be better and be a more complete life in you. That we can hope for the day that you return and that we get to look at the day that you did come and look forward to the day that you will come. And so we pray that your grace be upon our time, that our hearts will be ready for this, be ready for your scripture, Be ready for what you have to say today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you about your favorite meal of the day. If it's breakfast, raise your hand. 
okay? Lunch, one, two. I was kind of surprised. I thought there'd be no one that lunch. Maybe you just go to Taco Tuesday and that's your jam. Uh, uh, how about dinner? None of the above, raise your hand, just dessert, something, in, you know, I don't know. Yeah, Kendra. Great, 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 great. So how many of you actually ate with someone one of those meals this week? Raise your hand. Okay, majority of us. Okay. So how many of you actually made the meal that you ate? Okay, a little bit less. Yeah, that's the way it goes, right? My wife is reigning champ. Uh, she does that often. She's the queen of it. Uh, life is changing a lot in America, including our dinner. Our dinner is changing in America. Wall Street Journal reports that there's a new, uh, there's a new trend, and it's solo dinners. More and more Americans are trending towards eating dinner alone. It's something new for our age that in probably the past 50 years, it's rapidly changed where more and more people are eating alone. And if that's not depressing enough, in 2018, the New York Post reported that based on a survey done by Nutrisystem, anybody, Nutrisystem, not me, uh, one in three Americans cannot, I repeat, cannot have dinner without their phone. One in three, and 29% say that meal has to be accompanied by your phone. So if you're eating alone, at least you have your phone. I don't know. And if it's not a phone screen, 72% of Americans say that they eat with the other screen on, your TV. 72% of Americans eat their meals with TV. Now, Nutrisystem, if you know anything about them, they're a diet company that provides meals for people. They did this because they wanted to see how screens were affecting how people ate. And what they found is that if you do eat while distracted, you actually eat worse that if you eat, you're probably not thinking about what you're eating, how long you're eating, or the things that you'll put in there. Everything about that, your diet changes because you're distracted by what you're eating. And so push aside the idea that our pant sizes and our obesity rates are changing because of the phone. What's this say about how we eat with other people? Are we doing real community when we when we eat with someone, if we have our phantom phone in the pocket. Uh, there's actually a study that says, if you grow dependent on your phone, your smartphone, there, there's now this magical device. Your brain begins functionalized where there's a magical device where it's constantly shouting your name in your pocket to check emails, to check notifications. Just be quiet for a second. You think about your phone. And so imagine now having a dinner, not even with your device out. Not even with your device out, it's in your pocket shouting at you while you're trying to have a conversation with someone. Now, our sermon isn't about phone usage, and the series isn't about phone usage, though that's on the way. Uh, but much of the sermon is about the idea of dining. It's about eating with someone. And I brought up the last stat because I want to bring up the importance of meals and what phones are doing to an ancient way of communal living, that is, eating together. Think, to have meals with others is a form of relational development. It's a way of having community, a way of having intimacy. To dine with someone, or another way to put it, to have table fellowship with someone, isn't simply about the meal itself, although my wife makes incredible food. It's actually about inviting someone else, another person in, to give them attention, to know them, and to experience them. It's not about just the food. It's about the person you're having the food with. That's what dining is. To dine with someone is to experience them, to know them, to talk with them. Now, John, the author of Revelation, speaks to a lot of dinners. We're only going to cover really one or maybe two today. And one meal in particular that he covers is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. We just read about it. 
That's about as much as we get about the marriage supper of the Lamb, is that it's announced that blessing if they're part of it. And as I mentioned at the start, some of us maybe are reluctant to have this kind of hope that Jesus will return. And my argument today is that dining with Jesus now feeds our hunger to dine with him later. Dining with Jesus now feeds our hunger to dine with him later. Today we're going to explore what John says about the final dinner between Jesus and his people, what it means literally or symbolically, and how it concerns us today. How we should feel about it or how we actually don't feel about it. We'll find that dining with him is not just something we should look forward to enthusiastically, but a daily rhythm that we as people are to practice right now. So let's look at this real quick. Revelation has been skewed for many different purposes, so I want to give us a quick intro. I mean, quick. I, I mean, I was trying my best. I mean, you drop into chapter 19, and you feel like Nicolas Cage coming out of that thing. You just don't know what's going on. You know, shout out to uh, National Treasure 3. Uh, you have no clue, no clue what's going on. And uh, we're going to drop in, so I'm going to do my best to give us a synopsis of what's going on. So Revelation, like I said, is just one of those books that make you nervous to look at. So hopefully we can get some clarity today. The book of Revelation is traditionally linked to John, the beloved disciple, the stories of Jesus that we know about. It belongs to a particular Jewish genre called apocalyptic writings. Everyone say apocalyptic. You're not going to use that probably much in your life, but it's apocalyptic writing. It's, it's similar to Daniel, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, or similar to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Those were apocalyptic writings. And they recount a prophet's symbolic dreams or visions. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project describes it as this. They are writings based on the visions or dreams which reveal God's perspective on history and current events so that the present could be understood in light of the history's final outcome. I'm going to read that again. They are writings based on the visions or dreams which reveal God's perspective on history and current events so that the present could be understood in light of history's final outcome. Unfortunately, these visions and symbols have been more often used as a Bible code to unlock the end times or denounce a president or two or three or four or defame certain movements or even to oppress people or move them into a relationship with Jesus by scaring them there, which I've experienced firsthand, right? So all to the shame of this, using it in an unwise way, hopefully we can see what Revelation is really trying to do today. Revelation, much like the Old Testament writings, communicated through symbolic numbers and visions and images from the Old Testament. Using these symbols and numbers, John wanted his readers to go back and look at the Old Testament to understand what he was actually saying. And so the meaning of these ideas in the future actually have their roots in the Old Testament. If you want to understand Revelation, you have to read your Bible. You have to know what the Old Testament actually says. And context is king. It's a great phrase. If you ever want to understand what the Bible is saying, carry around. Context is king. And so the audience of this apocalyptic letter actually matters. The people whom it's written to matters. This letter was written to seven churches in Asia Minor. And as you would notice in the first few chapters, this original audience was scattered everywhere. And they were doing all sorts of things, whether being faithful or faithless. And its original audience in Asia Minor is that anchored original historical context. So we don't, just to, we don't get to look at Revelation and just put whatever meaning we want on it about a certain president or a certain group. It reigns as king in that context 
that what happened to those Christians helps us understand what's going on today. And so in chapter 19, we heard, uh, I think Pastor Jerry, yeah, Pastor Jerry read it earlier. And as we heard at the beginning of chapter 19, we land in the middle of a celebration. In the middle of a celebration. God's elders, the angels, the heavenly creatures and his multitude, his people, they're celebrating this symbolic city empire called Babylon. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time there, but Babylon is this symbol uh, of all that which is oppressive, all that which is luxurious, all that which is business-minded, politic-minded, superpower that is getting the wealthier wealthy and the powerful more powerful. And that's what Babylon really was uh, symbolizing there. And so John sees this destruction of Babylon that happened in 18, and now the people are celebrating that it's destroyed in 19. In 19, verses 1 through 5, they are shouting for praise. They're celebrating. Her smoke rises forever. It's really graphic. And the idea is she's dead, dead. That idea of an oppressive system where God isn't king and his people and the marginalized people are taken advantage of is gone. And it's a domino effect that after 19, that his enemies continue to fall. And in the middle of chapter 19, we get our dinner. Verse 6, if you look at verse 6, you see this word hallelujah. Now that's a, a Hebrew expression of praise Yahweh. It's a Hebrew expression of praise Yahweh. It's the only time in the New Testament where you're going to find that word, and we sing it often out of this chapter here. This is an expression of praise God, praise Yahweh. John is linking back again to the Old Testament, like I said earlier, and he's saying that this God who's reigning supreme is the Old Testament God. Same one, linked to Jesus. Jesus is his Messiah. They say praise Yahweh using his original name, and John is wanting you to see that. Why do they celebrate? You see him, uh, I think it's behind me. Uh, Marty, if you could throw the, the slide of the verses behind me. I keep on pointing like it's back there. Uh, but the verse here in chapter uh, 19, verse 6, I believe, it says that the Almighty reigns. The Almighty reigns. Again, John is doing hyperlinks. Anybody? We know what hyperlinks are, right? If you see it on the page, it's blue. It's underlined. This is another hyperlink. That If you were to click it, you'd go back to Isaiah 52, verse 7. That God reigns. Where you see the messenger with his beautiful feet, and he announces to a, a, an oppressed Israel and says, your God reigns. And so he's bringing back that imagery and saying, your God reigns. The Almighty finally reigns. What they saw in part, we see in whole in chapter 19, that God is actually king. He's actually defeated his enemies. He's actually established his sovereignty. Now the multitude, which is the crowd, which is his people, continues in verse 7. They say, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Up to this point, John has made clear that the symbolism in Revelation is that Jesus is the Lamb. But who is his bride? Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that the church is the, is the bride. But that's not only there. It's throughout the scriptures where there's this constant theme that God marries his people. It goes into the Old Testament. As one theologian states, the idea of such a marriage goes back to the ancient Jewish tradition of Israel as Yahweh's bride. Wooed in the wilderness, married at Sinai, unfaithful for many generations and eventually cast away, but then wooed and won all over again in a covenant renewal that would result in the renewal of the whole creation. All covenants that you see in the Bible lead up to this one. Lead up here where the marriage of the lamb and his people, the bride and the groom, 
Verse 8 reads this, It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is also linked to verse 7, if you were to look back, where there's this idea of righteous deeds as garments. Now, they prepared themselves through good works is what it says. I've seen a lot of wedding planning in my life. My wife was super low maintenance in the most beautiful of ways. She was great. What they're getting at here is the church does wedding planning by doing good works. Wedding planning through good works. The church is getting ready for her marriage by doing good works. Works alone? Are they married because of works? Not exactly. It says that they were granted the linens and they worked in preparation. As G.K. Beale says this, a transformed life of good works, though certainly not perfection, is not only the proper response to justification, but a necessary external response or badge required before entrance to the wedding of the Lamb is granted. We prepare for this day through works because of the righteousness given. It's both. Verse 9 says this, in continuation with the theme of the marriage, the angel says that blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is speaking to the audience again, and it's saying, look, the bride is about to be wed to the Lamb. Blessed are you if you show up to see it, but also blessed are you if you're partaking in it. Is he misspeaking? No, he's just doubling down, that it is double the blessing, that you would not only partake, but you'd be there. He is trying to carry this imagery in and say, you will be blessed if you are here at this one. He's doubling down on covenant ideas that God marries his people. Here, John is combining the imagery of marriage with God's great feast. If you were to go back in Isaiah again, it's another hyperlink. If you click it, you go back to 25 in Isaiah, and you'd see this beautiful feast. It's a chapter where Yahweh invites all people from all across the land to come and partake in a feast, a rich feast after Yahweh defeats his enemies. So John wants you to see again that his story or this recounting of his vision is rooted in the Old Testament where he will swallow up death and wipe away every tear and they will feast on rich foods. It's full of imagery that John picks up and uses to explain where God is taking the world, where his people will finally be with him. John is also following step with Jesus. You hear Jesus use a couple different parables where he, I, he combines these ideas of marriage and feasting. If you remember the feast of the par, uh, in the parable where the man has a son and they have food prepared and they invite people from across the land to come in and they have a plethora of excuses and so the unlikely are the ones that are invited into the marriage fest. Jesus is trying to cue in this idea that both is in common with Jewish culture and in ours where there's a celebration of matrimony. Both marriage and meal are settings of relational intimacy. Again, dining and marriage. Marriage and meal are settings of relational intimacy. To marry someone is to know them, and they you. To dine with someone is to experience them, and they know you. I hope you're following on because I believe that this emphasis on marriage and this emphasis on eating together is not so much about the food not so much about the, 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 the matrimony, the celebration of a marriage, but it's more about knowing. That it's not so much about these images, whether there'll be literally a feast and we'll eat it up, and there very well may be. I'm not trying to knock that down. But it's not, in my humble opinion, the idea that John wants you to look forward to. It's not the food. I'm sure it'll be great. 
It's not the idea simply that we'll be married to Jesus. I'm sure that would be beautiful, that ceremony. But at the heart of all this is eating together, is table fellowship. To have someone over for a meal is, as we mentioned at the start, to have close communion with them. John is pulling back the curtain to show us at the end of the age, the goal at the second coming of Jesus is that when the Lord does actually come, those who are the bridegrooms will have deep relational fellowship with him, intimate communion with him, deep relationship, comparable to the friendship and the oneness that marriage allots a husband and a wife, an incredible table fellowship relationship with Jesus that when he returns, we'll be one with him complete oneness with him. One day God's people will be face to face with Jesus, as intimate as marriage, as intimate as a meal, dining with him. And the great question of the day is that do we actually look forward to having that kind of presence with him? Do we actually want that? Do we want to be that close to his face? Do we want to be in his presence forever? Not that forever we'll sit down and look him in the eyes, though maybe, but in the resurrected life and world, will be completely in his company, completely in his presence forever. Is that what we look forward to? As one theologian says, if you could have heaven with all of its beauties, its benefits, could you be satisfied if Jesus wasn't there? If you had freedom, salvation, peace, but no Jesus, would you be comfortable with heaven? Would you be comfortable with the world that God is taking us to? Or is it to be with him? I believe that some of us in the room may be completely comfortable with an idea of an eternity without Jesus as long as we get the benefits. No hell, no pain, etc., because we know him. I believe some of us do not long for that day of intimacy because we don't dine with him today. We don't know him today. We don't have table fellowship with him today. And as I said before, our proposition today is that dining with Jesus now feeds our hunger to dine with him later. It fuels a desire to be with him and his presence forever. And I believe this present dining of sorts that we can have today is revealed at the beginning of Revelation. Turn quick to Revelation chapter 3. We'll be there for just a second. Revelation chapter 3. We're not going to read a lot. I just want you to see I'm not making it up. Revelation chapter 3, it's the beginning of this particular book. Chapter 3 is where John is uh, writing what Jesus would say to the churches in Asia Minor. In particular, chapter 3, verse 14, is where Laodicea is written to. 14 through 22, you see John's portion to the uh, church in Laodicea. And these are the ones, you know, you always hear it, uh, if you've been in church for a minute, you hear this term of lukewarm. This is where this comes from, the idea of lukewarm. They aren't hot water, so they're no good for cooking. And they're not cold water, which is refreshing. They're tap water, lukewarm, West Dallas water, nothing special. I'll drink it. I drink tap water, but it's not special. It's not hot. It's not cold. They're useless to Jesus. And what does he tell them in particular? He says this in chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Scholarly evidence suggests that meals were the primary way that Christians gathered at the beginning of the movement of Jesus. They gathered for meals to hear scripture read, 
letters read, to fellowship with one another, to take of the Lord's communion together. And so they aren't sitting like this. They're over a table. And so there's a guy reading this letter from John while they're all at a meal or just wrapped it up. And it says this while they're eating. Jesus is outside. He's not eating with us here. He's not invited to the meal. He's outside their meals waiting to be let in to eat with his people as they are literally eating as a way of saying he's not dining. He's not partaking in community with them. He's outside. He's outside the walls. Imagine Jesus outside of our church banging, waiting to be let in. He's writing to a church. Many times this verse is used, you should invite Jesus into your heart. This is to a church that has locked Jesus out. This is to a life group that's pushed Jesus out. This is to your home that you've locked Jesus outside while you're eating and having fellowship with your family, your life group, or your church. He's outside. And some of us today are like this, where we've locked Jesus outside the meals of our hearts and our homes. And therefore, surely you don't look forward to intimacy with Jesus one day. Relational, deep communion with Jesus one day. So in order to want to be with him at his return, we have to be with him now. Why would we want to be with someone in the future if we don't know them now? If we don't, or as we are saying, if we don't dine with him today, we not only may not want to be there, we may not get to be there. As Revelation reveals at different times. Dining, we said earlier, is about inviting another person in, giving them our attention to know them and to experience them. When it comes to the Christian, our dining with Jesus takes the form of giving him our attention, what the Bible calls abiding. We abide with him through turning our mind, our heart, our soul, our body to him through thought, through quiet times, through going through the day, reading the scriptures, praying, doing things in contemplation or meditation or with community. To dine with him is to turn our attention towards Jesus. To dine with him is to turn our attention to him. Our proposition today is that if you dine with him now, you'll want to dine with him later. But if you don't dine with him now, there's no real desire, and you may be more scared of the idea of dining with him later, rightfully. And so I think there are two bad eating habits. That's what I'm going to call it. Two bad eating habits that I think, at least in our body, where I've thought about it, talked with my wife about it, been praying about it, that I think are keeping some of us today from having a meal, a table, fit, a table fellowship presence with Jesus. Those two are this, an anorexic appetite and a missing meal plan. An anorexic appetite and a missing meal plan. Anorexic appetite. By no means am I making light to downplay the reality of anorexia when I say this. Because it is a mental illness and it's deadly at that. 5% at least of women and girls die of anorexia. It's a real issue. But I want to use this as a way to communicate the severity that the church is facing and the death that this kind of appetite can bring to us. Anorexia, to think that one is fat when one is skinny... The idea that you become continually unhealthy through an unhealthy habits when you actually think you're becoming more healthy. 
American Christians have a, a slight twist of this, a similar issue where we have a plethora of English translations of the Bible. We have enough food for us to devour as Christians of opportunity and time to spend with Jesus. We have an extreme wealth and freedoms in our country where you can actually spend time in church or community or whatever you want to do. You have plenty to have a healthy diet as a Christian and you refuse. You refuse. Refuse to partake in the food that God has given us. Refuse to even show up at the dinner table. Won't even hear Jesus outside desiring to eat with us because we assume Jesus and we are good. It's assuming that you're all right when you're not. It's assuming that you're fat enough when you are actually dying on the inside. That you are a good Christian, but you are thin. That you're a bone thin. And there's enough for you to eat. Even if Jesus showed up, many of us assume that we are so fat in Christianity that we've had enough to eat and won't even sit down with him if he came. We don't want to show up to quiet time because, hey, I've already gone to church. I've already gone to life group. I got enough. When you're meager and a skeleton because you don't have meals, how could you eat two meals a week and be all right? You have to have fellowship and time with him. We don't dine with him now because we refuse to dine with him. We assume our corpulence, our obesity in the faith and think that we're okay. In fact, we could go without a quiet time. We could go without prayer at this point, without memorizing scripture because we've had so much in our lives. But that's not how food works. We've had so much in our, we have a ministry job. We have a nonprofit job. We have, we lead certain life groups. We lead certain ministry. We have enough Jesus and we've eaten enough to make it when we're actually dying of food. Do you skip or drop meals assuming your own health? And you may look like one of those at Laodicea who are refusing to hear the wake-up call. And he's outside knocking. The other idea is missing a meal plan. Some of us are missing a meal plan. We don't show up to the dinner table because we haven't even planned on eating with Jesus. We don't even have a plan for meeting with him or even if we will meet with him. We have assumed that dining with Jesus, communion with him, will just kind of happen in the spirit, spontaneous. And so by not planning, you actually end up becoming more and more unhealthy. More and more unhealthy because you end up, instead of you know, going to Taco Mariachi, you're going to Taco Bell. You're not sitting down to eat. You're not actually sitting down to prepare something. It's interesting because in our day and age, if you remember in 2017 or so, these, uh, these different companies came up where you could, I think it's called Blue Apron, Apron and these other food preparation companies are sending people food where they could actually prepare the meal at their home. They only have to go out to get the food. That's, they're so busy that you, know, you can't even get, you may do that, that's fine. But no judgment here. Uh, but what ends up is people just are so busy they even leave their meal prep kits outside. That's how busy that people are. And so they're not even planning to use their meal plan kit. And same with us. We're not planning to rule our own lives. Instead, our lives rule us. We're at the mercy of our day, hoping, I mean, planning that, you know, after lunch or when I get home, I'll have some time with Jesus. You know, squeeze something in, you know, with Jesus at the end of the day or squeeze something in at some point during the day. But we're living off of Fritos instead of a feast. We could have had a feast if we ruled our lives, if we structured our days, if we set limits on ourselves and planned our meals out. 
uh, if, you, if you know, if you were here, I think about two or three weeks ago, Pastor Jerry said this, we make it on time to our jobs, but we can't make it on time with Jesus. That just really shows you what you really value. It's not that you're tired, it's that you don't value it. It really is that you don't value it because you make it to your job where you get paid. But instead, you skip out on Jesus because that really shows you where your heart is. That's not just happenstance. It's what you believe your value and your time with Jesus will be. You see, it's not even enough to just plan when you will have another, another meal. It's actually that your whole day has to be organized around this idea of following Jesus. Just like Pastor Jerry, he's been doing this crazy intermittent fasting, lost a ton of weight. But it's not just that he doesn't eat at certain times. It's that his literal day is structured around when he will eat. I can't take him to lunch meals or else he just sits there and doesn't eat with somebody. I have to plan out when he's going to eat so we can have a meeting. His whole day shifts around this idea of eating. It's not just that he doesn't eat at certain times. It's that his whole day is now structured around this meal planning as to when he will actually eat. And you may be a stay-at-home mom. My wife, we've talked about this extensively. And you have limited amounts to your day. And as I know from my wife, there are very few moments that you get like two minutes before the next one wakes up. But if, even if you have not planned out those moments to reflect on Scripture for five minutes, to think, to pray, if it isn't your plan, it doesn't happen just happenstance. It doesn't just happen casually. It's not, you're not going to just feel a rush of spontaneous spirit. You haven't valued it. You haven't entered into it. And you won't dine with Jesus and make it a priority. There's one other that I would say, and I'm only going to hit it really quick, is a distorted diet. A distorted diet is not on your screen. But you think that by eating other things, you're actually healthy. These idols or these careers or these different things that we valued in our lives that we've said, that's enough for me to survive on. It's enough meaning for me to survive on. When in actuality, you are not even getting the nutrients that you need in your life. Placing our attention on the hope of a platform or a voice instead of a meal with Jesus will ruin you. It will ruin you. They're shallow meals to believe that your fulfillment will be in a girl or a guy or in a certain stage of your life where we look forward to that, but we don't look forward to Jesus someday in our lives. Before we, pl- uh, we close up, I want to reflect one more time on Revelation chapter 3. Instead of focusing on the church there, I want to focus on what Jesus is doing there. There's something unique about what Jesus is doing that reveals a lot about his own posture to us who have blocked him out. He does a couple things. He comes to our home. He stands outside. He knocks persistently and he calls out. Jesus stands outside. He knocks persistently. And he calls out. The idea of coming to our home. One day we'll go to him. One day there'll be a dinner where you go to his table. But what an incredibly good news that Jesus comes to your table today. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus has come to our house. And, and since he's not speaking to non-believers, he's speaking to the church that have locked him out. He's knocking outside. He's standing outside. To the one he loves, Jesus stands outside so often whenever I get ready, even this morning where I was getting ready, my two boys literally are outside the door of my room while I need a little privacy to get ready for just like five seconds. And they're standing outside, beating the door down. 
They want me to come out. They desire me to come out. It, it really communicates what they desire. Who's inside? Jesus stands outside the home of your heart where you've refused to have dining habits with him, and he stands there. He doesn't casually walk away and come back. He's not the Jehovah's Witness that show up once a month. He's right there, standing, waiting. He's a good king. He stands faithfully. He's outside your daily routine. He's outside your schedule waiting. Standing there patiently. His character is persistent. Not only that, he knocks. If you read the gospel stories, you see that Jesus uses the language of knocking a lot when it comes to prayer. Can you imagine that Jesus is knocking? And can you imagine he's praying to the Father for you to open the door of your heart? We, we know about Hebrews and we're like, oh, Jesus is praying for me. He's praying that you'd let him in. He's praying that the Father would allow the Spirit to charge up your heart so that you'd let him into your home. That's where he's at. He's knocking down things to dis- that are distracting you right now. He's knocking down your door so that you would spend time with him. This is the God that we look to. Jesus that stands outside and knocks on the door of your heart. He's persistent and he wants you. Finally, it's evident that in the calling out, he's calling out who would hear my voice. He's not just standing there. He's not just knocking there. Jesus is calling to you. Jesus is calling out to you. My boys, just like I mentioned earlier, they're yelling at me. Hurry up! Jesus wants to come inside. He's, but he says, if you will listen. Whoever will listen. Talking to the church again, we think that we hear you know, we're just in this constant, there's an idea that you as a church member and you as a church group or church life group, you cannot hear him at times in your life. And you're not listening as he calls out to you to spend time with him. The king of the universe stands, he's come to your home, he stands, he knocks, he shouts. That's the Jesus that we believe in. And we're not even talking about the salvation of the world. We're talking about you and I when we block him out of our schedules and don't want to dine with him. He is charged up to come to you, to your home, to spend time with you. So why would we want to dine with him? And the question really is, why wouldn't we want to dine with this Jesus that comes after us? As we see in the passage, he's an incredible Savior, loving God, patient friend, seeking out the best in our lives to come into our schedules to come into our plans. And when he does return through the marriage supper of the Lamb and we his bride, we his people, we will eat up and drink up his special and sweet communion. And the real question that we have to ask ourselves is are you confused and conflicted at this? Do you really desire Jesus to come back? And I would almost 99.9% say uh, you know, like the squirt balls that kill all the germs. I guarantee you that if you don't want him to return now, there's something off in your heart with whether or not you're spending time with him now. Are you spending time with him? Because if you knew him, you'd want him. If you knew him, you'd desire him. If we wanted him, we'd order our life around it. We'd stop assuming that we're okay when we're not. We'd stop missing out on the meals that we should have with him. Because dining with him is to give him our attention. If you neglect spending table fellowship with him now, it's no doubt that other idols have filled your life. 
it's no doubt that that fear of if you'll get married or fear of if you'll get that job, fear of if you will get that platform, if people actually like your profile or not, that attention that you desire will be met in Jesus. And the reason you're obsessed with those other things is because you haven't given your attention back to Jesus. Relationships, plans, schedules, recreation, sleep, laziness, whatever you want, has replaced that space where you give your attention back to Jesus. And it becomes a hurdle to wanting Jesus and spending time with him. Do you feed your hunger for him to come back? Do you feed your hunger? Because if you don't, you'll starve out. You'll be chewing on Fritos instead of actually looking forward to a feast. Those things will not feed you. Those things will not fill you. So I want us to bow our heads. And we're just going to spend some time um, as the band comes up in prayer. Um, What we have to really ask about these things is if you don't look forward to the return of Jesus, do you know who this Jesus even is? And if you don't, I want you to take courage that Jesus actually desires to meet with you. He stands outside your heart. I want you to spend a minute just to contemplate. What is it Jesus is poking at right now in your heart? What is it about your schedule, about your sleeping habits, about the things that you're doing that are not dining with Jesus What are you doing that you're filling your time with that should be filled with time with Jesus? Are you dining with him now? What is it God is calling you to stop? What is it God calling you to start? And what is God calling you to believe? Do you believe that Jesus actually stands outside your home? I think some of us have a general anxiety as to whether Jesus actually wants to know us. If we can actually have that kind of table fellowship with Jesus, I hope that it encourages you today that if you have that kind of insecurity, you see this Jesus today that is waiting on you. That knocks at the door of your life, of your schedule, of your family, of your home, of your life group, of your ministry, of your work. He waits outside for you to open the door so that he could come in and dine with you and you with him. He desires that. Even if you were to be found to be lukewarm today, there is great news that Jesus says he's outside the door. He waits. He knocks. He calls out to you, his beloved bride, to have taste of that sweet communion where one day we will dine with him forever. What is God calling you to stop? What is God calling you to start? What is he calling you to believe? Thank you again for listening to Disciple City Church Podcast. Until we meet again, Shalom. Shalom.